every woman, every man who's got themselves in bondage to sexual sin, whether they're still acting out or whether they're just in the aftermath of the shame, mm-hmm. you got to tell someone. James 5.16 says, confess your sins one to another, and then you will be healed. How do you forgive when the wound is still open? How do you leave a legacy of redemption instead of dysfunction? How do you trust God when your deepest fears are realized? Join me, Sarah May, along with some wise mentors along the way as we explore these and other messy heart topics and the strategies we can use to seek healing in the pain and restoration in the ruins. Welcome to the Complicated Heart Podcast. Near the end of high school, and as a new Christian, I came across a book called And the Bride Wore White. And that book was an eye-opener for me when it came to sex and purity. I had never been told or known that there were people who waited to have sex until marriage. And when I heard this, I gravitated to it because for the first time in my life, I felt a deep value in sexuality, that there was something sacred with sex and intimacy, and that God wanted something better for me for my body and my heart and my soul and my mind. I was so grateful for that book because it changed my paradigm, my belief that everyone was having sex outside of marriage. I certainly was. But it wasn't true, and there were good and beautiful reasons why people weren't having sex outside of marriage. I read more books by Dana Gresh, the author of And the Bride Wore White, and I later found out that we lived in the same town and had mutual friends and acquaintances. Over the years, Dana and I have run into each other a few times, but we've never really talked until now. I recently had the privilege to interview Dana for this show, and it was so good and such a delight, and I cannot wait for you to listen in. Okay, so who is Dana Gresh? Aside from someone who has mentored me from afar, she's a best-selling author, speaker, and founder of True Girl, America's most popular Christian tween event. She has authored over 20 books that have been translated into 12 languages, including And the Bride Were White and Lies Girls Believe. Considered one of the leading experts on the subjects of sexual theology and parenting tweens and teens, her resources have equipped over 1 million moms and leaders as they seek to raise their girls in confidence and truth. Over 400,000 have attended her live events. Dana is a frequent co-host for Nancy DeMoss Wolgamuth's Revive Our Hearts, as well as a popular guest on programs like Focus on the Family and Family Life. She's appeared on CNN, Fox News, and the TEDx stage. She lives on a hobby farm in State College, Pennsylvania with her husband, Bob, and over 20 animals. (laughs) Today, we are going to talk about sex and purity and modesty and why these terms cause... Uh, such a reaction. Where have we gone right as the church? Where have we gone wrong? And how can we live as Christians with wanting to embrace concepts like modesty and purity? And how can we do that with wisdom? And how can we teach our children that those concepts don't have to be bad or shameful, but can be good and beautiful? Dana, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure, Sarah. Okay, so I just found out that you 
have become a grandmother. I am. I'm a brand new grandma. What does it feel like? It, it, it's surreal. My brain is exploding. <laughs> I, 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 the only thing I have figured out is what they're going to call me. Oh, what are they going to call you? Nana Dana. Brilliant. Nana Dana. <laughs> I want to be May May. May May. You know, I hear that they kind of make, like, you tell them what you like, and then it turns into whatever they morph it into, and you love it. <laughs> That's how things like May May happen, I think. I just think May May sounds really cute, but it Nana. Does. Nana Dana, that's pretty amazing. Oh my gosh. I my love friend that. has a my friend's grandma name is Honey because her granddaughter, her first one, heard her husband calling her Honey, Honey, oh Honey. And so she just saying, Honey. Okay, that's really precious. I could totally be Honey too. Yeah. That sounds really good. I love that. Okay, well, we're gonna jump in and The topic that we're discussing today is modesty and purity. And so what I want to do today is I know there's women like us who are just listening and trying to figure out how do I live in this culture as a Christian and exhibit modesty and purity if I even want to, I think I want to, and I want to teach my daughters, but how do I do it without shaming them? And, you know, we have lots of questions. I know there mm-hmm. are moms listening who have questions. I know there are young women listening who have questions. And I do want to define terms. Uh, I want to talk about purity culture. I want to talk about what it is that you're doing that is healthy and good in this whole modesty, purity thing that we're talking about. Um, but how I want to start is I actually would love it if you would tell us how you even got into this Mm. line of work. Well, you know, it's usually our pain that brings us purpose. Mm -hmm. And such was the case in my story. Mm. Um, I really loved Jesus like crazy when I was a little girl. Um, Mm. Came to know him really young. Uh, Was discipled by a mom who like had Mm. expectations for me to read the Bible. And I'm reading the Bible when I'm eight years old because I don't know. I just told that's what you do. And really, it was just, it was a sweet love relationship with Jesus that I had. Uh, No legalism in my mom's faith Mm. and my family's faith in the church that I attended. Uh, And so I, I didn't, I guess I didn't know a lot of the guidelines about moral things because they weren't overly obsessed about. So when I got into mm. a Christian dating relationship when I was 15, it, it never would have occurred to me that it was even a possibility that I would um, become sexually active. That just mm. even sounds awful saying it. It's like something out of a movie that it's a line that you're going to make fun of, sexually <laughs> active, right? Uh-huh. Um, I, you know, it was, I was blindsided. I and immediately knew it was wrong, immediately felt ashamed. Mm. I went for overnight from a Christian girl that was serving God, teaching Sunday school, active in my youth group, to a girl that was just hiding. Mm. You know, I didn't feel like there was anyone I could tell. Um, would have been the, the 80s and that wasn't, or the, the late 70s and 80s. That was not a thing you talked about mm-hmm. at all. And so I just hid in shame for about 10 years mm. until I was listening to something like this program. I, I hear two people talking about the topic of sex mm. and I hear two sentences that it's almost as if I just heard them moments ago. The first sentence was a male saying, what is the number one question on her teen daughter's mind when she's talking to her mom about sex? Mm. 
Hmm. Without hesitation, a woman's voice said the number one question on her mind is, Mom, did you wait? Hmm. And I, I was driving my car, pulled to the side of the road, and I allowed probably 10 years of denial and grief and um, penance, Mm. self-penance to just overtake me. For the first time, I really felt the emotion of my sin. And you are married at this point? I'm 25 years old now, married. I have my six-month-old baby girl in the backseat of my car, Mm. which probably is the reason why I finally was ready to make it, which probably the reason I was finally ready to do the work mm. of healing because what I wasn't willing to do for my own heart, mama bear would do for that baby heart. Right. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And so I thought, well, if my daughter's future depends on my wholeness, then let's go find that. Mm. And so that's kind of how it all started. Never imagining that that was going to turn within months, turn into a little retreat in my home church where I'm, I got like a handful of teenagers that, you know, not only did I teach them and cook the food that weekend in a cabin, but, you know, I was dumb enough to pull up a sleeping bag on the floor next to them. I did that for years. As I just, Sarah, I would be invited. They'd say, hey, we heard you talk to these teenagers and it really was meaningful to them. And then I'd go to the next church and it just happened. Uh, No plan, no ambition, certainly to have a ministry really grounded in this topic. It just kind of was God's purpose for my life out of the pain Mm. of it. That is so sweet. Mm. And when you heard that radio show and you heard that question Mm -hmm. before the retreats and everything that followed, how did God work on your heart? Like how, what steps did you take next to begin to heal from I think what you would call your sexual sin. Mm -hmm. And pain and and shame. Mm. Um, So I hadn't been sinful for many, many years when I had that encounter in the car with God, just kind of saying, hey, sweet girl, it's time to put this in the past. Mm. You've been dragging this around. I haven't been, but you're having a hard time letting go. I mean, Sarah, I had asked God to forgive me every day. Mm. I maybe missed a few. I don't know. But in my mind, it was a, I'd wake up and I'd be like, it's a great day. The sun is shining. The birds are singing out. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, wait, something's wrong. Mm. Oh, that. You kept carrying it. It was just there. Mm. Such a disappointment in my life. Of course, I'm simplifying it. I'm not telling you the depth of the sin. I don't think I need to because I think so many of us carry those Mm -hmm. memories of sexual pain and sin. Um. But I really hadn't done anything but confess the sin to God that whole time. Now, what I know now is that God forgives us, but he's given us each other for the work of healing. Mm. So if you're just telling God, hey, forgive me, forgive me, but you're not going to your sister or your mentor or even a Christian counselor and saying, I got this junk in my heart that I just can't get out, you're probably going to have a hard time healing. I'm not saying God couldn't do it. It's just not how he made it to work. Mm -hmm. So that night, nobody told me to do this. I just finally had this sense of that I had to tell my husband who thought he'd married the driven snow, you know, because he didn't know. uh, No, he didn't because I was, I got out of that relationship in high school and stood before God say, okay, I don't know how to do this. Teach me. Mm. Um, And just had really good boundaries, healthy boundaries after that. Yeah. And so he was, 
I, I thought I thought he would be shocked. I thought he would punish me. I thought he would reject me. Mm-hmm. I expected him to be so disappointed that we would be separated. I mean, you know, your mind conjures up all this stuff because yeah. I tried to tell him so many times. I tried to tell him like when he proposed to me, he proposed to me in front of like 3,000 people on a stage. Like it wasn't a good time to say, hey, there's this one thing. Yeah. Um, I tried to tell him between the engagement and the wedding because I didn't want that hanging over us. Did he just assume or did you, yeah, because, did you lie about it? Ah, uh, No, he, uh, he couldn't see anything else in my life mm-hmm. that would make him think that or believe okay. that. Um, and I, I was in such bondage mm-hmm. yeah. that I Every time I tried to get... It ruined so many sweet moments mm-hmm. um, in our engagement, in our marriage. And it ruined it not just for me, but for him, because he would be like, what's wrong, baby? I don't... What? Mm-hmm. I couldn't... And I couldn't tell him. Mm-hmm. So I went home that night after hearing this, that, hey, your wellness, your daughter's wellness will depend a little bit on how whole, whole you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I told him. It took me three hours in a dark bedroom. I kept turning the light off. I did not want him to see my face. There was just, that's shame. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he would turn the light back on and off and on and on. Three hours later, I finally get one sentence out. Mm -hmm. And he said, baby, I don't don't think I need to say this for me, but I think you need to hear it. I forgive you. Mm. And then this is the woman who's expecting rejection. Instead, I feel his arms wrapping around me. Mm. And he's holding me. And it felt like, you know, it it felt like God's arms around me. His voice sounded like God's voice to Mm. me, just in the sense of really when we extend forgiveness to someone, that's Mm -hmm. what it is. It's all from him. And that was a revolutionary start in my journey. Every woman, every man who's got themselves in bondage to sexual sin, whether they're still acting out or whether they're just in the aftermath of the shame, mm-hmm. you got to tell someone. James 5.16 says, confess your sins one to another, and then you will be healed. I love that. We get that from each other. That's so good. And I, I do want to briefly say that because of your willingness to confess and face this and walk it through. Like you said, you started retreats. It wasn't like you had this big ambition. Mm-mm. But tell us a little bit about what came out of that because you've written books and you yeah. host um, the, do you call them seminars? What do you call them? Your conferences, your, yeah. what do they call Things the that things, we do. The big things. <laughs> Talk we, about yeah, the we big do, things. Yeah, well, it started out little, you know, um, that, uh, Part of my healing process was I, I didn't tell anybody but him. Then I told my mom. I felt a little more healed. And I told my best friend, more healing. And this, you think I would get the clue that I could get as much healing as I wanted, right? It was a matter of being transparent mm. and vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And um, we're missing that in the body of Christ in many ways still today. And so um, two little old ladies come up to me in my church. Grandma's probably like me mm-hmm. <laughs> now, <laughs> and said, hey, Dana, we're doing this retreat for the women in our church on sexual healing. Mm. We want you to do one that weekend with the teenagers on sexual purity. And I was like, say what? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure 
I'm not the right person for that. They're like, no, no, no. We prayed really long and hard and we feel like God wants you to do it. And I'm like, well, you should pray again. Mm-hmm. And they came back the next Sunday. Hey, Dana, we prayed again this week and we mm-hmm. still feel like they came like three or four weeks in a row. Yeah. And finally, because I didn't want to confess to them, I said, okay, I'll do it. I'll just get through this. Yeah. I won't tell my story. I'll just, I can, I can do this. Mm-hmm. Well, I did tell my story. Mm-hmm. And I found that in telling our stories, we set so many other hearts free. And that was something I just, I loved doing. And I I thought, what if somebody had told me their story five years ago, eight years ago, 10 years ago, would I have been in this prison all those years? Mm. And so um, just decided to write a book and The Bride Were White and God just miraculously brought it to be published and then blessed it. It continues to sell today. It's almost 20 years old. Um, And out of that, conferences for teenagers. Now we have Mm -hmm. some preventative ministry called True Girl, where we really walk beside moms as they disciple their daughters in some Mm -hmm. of these, not just the topics of sexuality and boys, but gender and beauty and all the stuff that tween girls just need to be discipled in. Um, And yeah, we we, we do about 100 events across the country a year now. It's just really been beautifully blessed. Yeah, it's been it's been incredible to watch and you already know and I told you this that uh, The Bride Wore White was one of the first books that I read having to do with purity and modesty and it just was a paradigm shift for me when I read it at the end of high school beginning of college because I didn't know these things. I didn't know that there were people who waited to have sex until marriage. And interestingly, and, and then once I learned it, I was like, oh, well, this makes, you know, so much sense. And I want to, I want to try and do that, like start over, you know, but it's interesting because now the question has arisen again, even in Christian communities, um, does the Bible really say that we should wait for marriage mm-hmm. to have sex? I see this a lot. And I think, and I don't, I don't know, but what I'm seeing is this idea that it's really not a big deal mm-hmm. to have sex before marriage, even if you're a Christian. And I would be curious if you could share with us why, as Christians, we should wait to have sex until marriage. Mm-hmm. It sounds really obvious, and a lot of listeners um, right now are going, well, that's such a dumb question. But I have a lot of young girls who listen as well, yeah, and they're asking that question. Yeah, and even those that think they know the right answer, they don't really know the minutia of it <laughs> a lot of times. So, for example, um, in Bible times a man and a woman would have sex before the marriage ceremony. And many people don't really realize that. And so they get caught up in, you got to have a wedding before you have sex. Well, that's not really the line Mm. that God has put forth in the word of God. Uh, An Old Testament Jewish wedding would have been signing, um, you know, a, a marriage covenant or contract. Covenant is a much higher standard then we understand when we sign a marriage license. And that covenant means we are forever bonded and committed to each other. Now, we would, in our timeline of how we do relationships today, that would be like the engagement, except they called it a betrothal. Uh, they called it a betrothal, except it wasn't, it was very different from an engagement because that was like 
binding. Mm-hmm. However, the guy had to go prove that he could pr- provide for her. So he had to like go build a house or build a room on his father's house before he could actually have his bride. But the second he finished that, um, you know, he would go to her father, make the agreement. The father would say, okay, you have to pay a price for the bride. The price might have been some labor, might have been a cow or two, very weird and hard for us to understand. But there's still cultures today that do that. Mm-hmm. And then the guy would go off and prepare a place for her. And he would build a home or a room on the home. And then the second he was done, it didn't matter if it was the middle of the night, he and his friends would come running through the streets, rejoicing that he could provide for his bride. And he would take her into the bedchamber and consummate their relationship. And then the marriage ceremony would happen. Maybe it'd be a week-long marriage celebration. Um, so the order in which we do things, don't get, don't have sex before you have the wedding you know, that's kind of semantical in some ways. What scripture says is don't be married out, don't have sex outside of covenant. Mm. Do not have sex outside of covenant. And so we don't really understand that in our culture. What does it mean? Um, it is a total giving of yourself. It is a total denial of yourself. It is a total commitment for life mm. that you are not your own that you're one. And it, they, they lived in a covenant culture. And so they understood that. Um, we don't, we don't get it. Can you real briefly define or what, what is a covenant? So a covenant is, it's basically um, an if then bonding agreement. So if you, if you will give me this type of payment, then I will give you, uh, it wasn't an exchange of goods because it would be, I will give you everything of me. So we see this in the book of Ruth, where Ruth comes into Boaz's land and he says, I'm entering into a covenant with you. So everywhere you go, say my name. You have the authority that everybody under me, Boaz, will bow to you essentially. Now they might not physically bow down, but they'll say, oh, that's Boaz's girl. She gets everything she wants, right? So think about that in terms of our covenant with Christ. Say the name of Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. We can say the name of Jesus and everything under the power and authority of Jesus has to bow to us. Think about that when we pray in the spirit. Think about that when, um, you know, when our car is swerving out of control and we call upon his name or when we lay hands on a sick friend who has cancer or when we pray about our finances or the job. So this is the <clears throat> so this is the the culture in which they uh, they understood that this was a giving of all things. Mm. Now, what do we do today? We do um what are those agreements they do with marriage uh prenup agreements. <laughs> it's like, okay, total opposite of the covenant concept. It's like, you have your stuff. I have my stuff. We're going to have sex together. We probably are already having sex together. Um, and we're going to live together for a while. But if this doesn't work out, you have your stuff. I have my stuff. We don't even understand. Mm. We, we, we don't even have the language, Sarah, to describe what covenant is in our mm. culture today. It's very difficult to understand. Hmm. So how do we, so then how do we, (laughs) how do we start to understand sex? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And why, and why we wait for the covenant? Yeah. I think we go back to Genesis. I like that because when Jesus is asked difficult questions about divorce, 
when the Pharisees are trying to trick him and say, hey, but what about divorce? He says, well, in the beginning, and he goes back to Genesis. Mm -hmm. So Genesis is where nothing is untainted, and we can look back there and say, what did God mean when it comes to everything but sex and gender and marriage? So the first thing that blew me away was as I was beginning to travel the country and talk about this, I was like, God, blow me away because I don't think I understand this sex thing. Mm. Um, And I'm reading through the Bible. I actually had prayed, God, as I read through the Bible this year, just show me something that I'm not hearing in the church about sex. Blow me away. And I had made a commitment that year to read through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. Mm. I'd never done that before. I was about 28 (laughs) years old. And I get to Genesis 4. It was like April I was all the way to Genesis 4, like valiantly made my way to Genesis 4 by way to persevere. <laughs> five months in. Yeah. And um, I read, Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth. And I thought to myself, that dude was so not laying there. <laughs> like, that makes no sense at all. And so I get my Hebrew language aid out. And I'm like, what was the word? And it... It said, Adam, yada, Eve. Well, I thought it was yada, yada, it, yada like yada. yada, yada, yada. Seinfeld made us think blah, 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 boring, 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 right? Not such a boring word after all. Um, it w- it's actually correctly pronounced yada. Mm-hmm. It means to know, to be known, to be deeply respected. So here, it, it, no inkling of the physical act taking place between husband and wife. It skips that part of it, right? Mm. Goes to the emotional and spiritual connection happening. Mm. And I was kind of starting to be blown away. I was like, okay, God, I feel something here. Sex is, uh, it's not physical. Mm. Like my paradigm is that it's physical. And this definition in your word is that it's not physical. So I'm reading a few months later in uh, Genesis 18, and I come to a horrific passage where Lot is leaving Sodom and Gomorrah with his daughters. His wife stays behind. She becomes a pillar of salt. They're up in the mountains. The daughters who have no value in this misogynistic mm-hmm. patriarchal world outside of having children mm-hmm. are like, who are we going to have kids with? It's just dad. Mm-hmm. So the Bible says they get their daughter, their fa- they get their father drunk mm-hmm. and they have sex with him. And I was like, is this the same word? Mm-hmm. But it wasn't. It was the word shakab. Shakab means um, to exchange body fluids. And I was like, oh, this word, this actual horrific act of sexual sin is not the same word. Mm. It's a word that's limited to the physical. It's talking about this mere exchanging of body fluids. And I'm like, oh, I see it. I see it. There is a spiritual sex that God has created for us, which is a sharing of yourself, your whole self, a knowing and then there's the physical exchange. And Sarah, we live in a world that is absolutely obsessed with the physical exchange. Yes. And so many times it's fake. It's like if I were to plug this lamp sitting here with us, mm-hmm. if I were to plug this lamp in in a dark room and you'd be like, oh, it's light now. It's so such warm light. It's such a refreshing light. I can see your face now. Like that's mm-hmm. what the purpose is, right? But instead we're like, look how that plugged into the wall. Like I'm obsessed with the plug, right? Mm-hmm. We have missed it all together. It's not about the plug. The plug is just the way we get to, I don't, I guess that's mm-hmm. a really, uh, it's a bad example, but I, I'm, I'm just trying to make the point that yeah. we don't even understand what sex is in our culture. 
because we are so living in a culture of shakab, the physical, the mere exchanging of body fluids, and it's a counterfeit. Yeah. It's not what God originally created, so we're addicted. Why are we addicted? Because it wasn't satisfying. It wasn't enough, so we go back for more because we think, maybe if I try it with this partner, or maybe if I try it with that partner, or maybe if I just look at a different kind of porn, or maybe if I just... Do it upside down. I mean, we get crazy, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's not scratching the itch of our soul. Mm. What I know you've done a lot of research on this. What happens to a person when they have sex? Mm -hmm. Uh, You talk a little bit about the the glue or yeah. the, can you talk a little bit about that? So, and yeah. this is important. And can you distinguish that or help us to understand those who are listening who maybe their first time was that they were forced or their mm, sexual abuse. Mm, and so yeah. I'm, I'm kind of interested in what happens to bodies when the, when when we have sex. Mm-hmm. And is that different or how does that play out when somebody yeah. is sexually abused? That's just something I'm studying right now. It's very complicated. But again, go back to Genesis, the beginning. <clears throat> and in the beginning, what do we see? Adam and Eve meet. What's the first thing God does? He has a wedding ceremony. He puts them in covenant relationship. And um, it says that the two will become one flesh. Mm-hmm. So this is the first time we hear this language where two people become one. Um, we, we, that oneness is actually a physiological thing happening in us. I believe it's a spiritual thing, but we've now in the last few decades understood it as a physiological thing that's functioning in our brains. So when two people have sex, mm-hmm. um, the deep limbic system of the brain, the center of the brain that, that carries our emotions and our memories, um, it's the part that makes uh, perfume romantic. It's the part that makes a love song a love song, that part of the brain that stores all of that. Um, it gets a prolific download of dopamine and oxytocin when you have sex with someone. So dopamine's the chemical, the neurochemical that says that felt good. Mm-hmm. It's all it's telling your brain is that felt good. It's also telling your brain, do that again. Mm-hmm. So now here's the problem with dopamine. Dopamine is values neutral. So we get dopamine mm-hmm. when we run. Are you a runner by chance? Heck no. Yeah, me neither. I don't understand those people. Uh, not that I don't, I'm not glad you're listening if you're a runner, but the only time I would run is if it was a bear chasing me. Uh-huh. Uh, but they say that runners really get that wall where they feel like they, now they feel like running, right? Well, that's mm-hmm. dopamine hitting their brain. Mm. You also get dopamine when you do crystal meth because mm-hmm. that feels good too. Or when you get likes on Instagram. Yeah, yes, exactly. Dopamine. Mm-hmm. We're having some real uh, dopamine addiction from yes. social media right now. So dopamine. Dopamine doesn't tell you this is good for you. It just tells you it feels good. That's a good distinction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it makes you want to go back and get more of that. Mm -hmm. So we get dopamine. We also get oxytocin. Oxytocin is the bonding neurochemical. Mm -hmm. It says, I belong. Mm -hmm. The very first time we experience that is when um, we're, we're nursing at our mother's breasts for the very Mm -hmm. first time. Mm -hmm. That skin to skin contact um, prolific downloads of oxytocin go into the baby's brain, into the mama's brain, and they're like glue. They say, you're not alone in this world. You belong together. Um, we get that at the climax of, of, sexual, of a sexual encounter, big prolific downloads of oxytocin that say you're not alone. So the Dr. Joseph McElhaney of the Medical Institute for Sexual Health says that what we're learning about the brain tells us it's not just an emotional feeling about this oneness, but that it's like a physiological brain glue that puts you together. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, dopamine without the oxytocin 
oxytocin is a little more value sensitive. It says, I want to belong and I want to be faithful. Dopamine doesn't do that. Um, And so when we get into sexual encounters where we're not having the contact and the commitment and the oneness, uh, that's where that kind of starts to break down a little bit, which Mm -hmm. brings us to the idea of rape, incest, sexual abuse. And why that trauma would be so confusing for Very confusing. Because your body is doing what it's kind of supposed to do. but kind then at this, And so there's sort of these hormonal things going on, but mm-hmm. at the same time, it's so twisted. Well, what happens, what we're learning happens is, this is very fascinating, very fresh, and I'm just studying it. So research it and learn for yourself. But here's mm-hmm. what I know, is that you obviously, um, you in, in a case like that, for, let, let's just take one of them. Let's take child sexual abuse, okay? Mm-hmm. The child does feel pleasure. The child will feel physical pleasure. Um, I have a hard time even saying that. Mm -hmm. That feels so icky to me. And so they'll get the dopamine, right? The dopamine says, um, I I want that again because it felt good. At the same time, the child is probably being told to keep secrets. The child is probably uh, kind of mentally acutely aware that something's not right about this. Mm -hmm. But they're also getting the oxytocin, Sarah. However, that oxytocin, that's why we see like when um, a child is separated from an abuser, they don't like it. Um, When a child, maybe it's a cousin or not even somebody inside their home, but they've come to visit for a while, they might feel remorseful or sad when that cousin leaves. Now, at the same time, when there's acute abuse, the oxytocin isn't produced until, so this would be where rape or... um, a more violent uh, sexual crime without relationship occurs. The oxytocin doesn't happen. So that pers- that woman is very confused, or man, because sometimes mm-hmm. men are abused. Yes. Very confused. What we're seeing is that if that person tells someone right away, let's say they go to the police, mm-hmm. they tell someone, then the brain starts to create oxytocin and create peace mm. And, and erases some of that confusion. So we don't fully understand it, but we know that if a woman who's traumatized doesn't tell, the oxytocin doesn't happen and she's more mm-hmm. confused. Yes, which makes sense because mo- we know that most people don't tell. Certainly children usually don't say anything until they're adults, if ever. Right. Mm-hmm. So we're just learning. We don't have, but what we do know, confusion is the right word. You use that word when you mm-hmm. ask me the question. Yeah. Um, yeah. The neurochemicals create confusion in abuse victims, and that makes the healing process really challenging. Yeah. And I think that that actually lends to the point that you can hold a hatred for something mm-hmm. and yet keep going back to it. Well, that's the kind of definition of domestic abuse, right? Mm -hmm. Is that the woman understands this isn't good for me. Maybe she understands this isn't good for my children, Mm -hmm. but I can't live without him. Mm -hmm. Or, and also because of the oxytocin that you're talking about, I know for me, so I was always proud of myself that like alcoholism wasn't my addiction. I was like, oh, I don't have an addiction problem because I don't drink. But what I did when I was lonely is I would have to go and be with a guy mm-hmm. just to be close to get, and I wouldn't have known 
oh, I'm getting that oxytocin. Because at the same time, I hated it. I didn't want to do that. Yeah. I knew it was wrong, but it was feeding something in me mm-hmm. that I felt like I needed. I was desperate yeah. for. Get it was my dope, escape. You were getting a real good dopamine hit. Mm-hmm. Um, here's the thing that's interesting, Sarah. Um, so dopamine, we get dopamine when we eat food. We'll get mm-hmm. several hundred units of dopamine when we eat food, and it trails off after a short period of time. Um, some of the higher hits of dopamine would come with heroin, so mm-hmm. we get this big, big hit, big high, and then it drops off. Mm-hmm. Pornography is the scariest research I've ever seen about dopamine because mm-hmm. we get this pretty high hit. It's way above, say, food. It's, it's, um, it, it's similar to a sexual high, fairly high, but it'll last for hours. Mm. It just goes, that dopamine hit goes on and on and on and on and Mm. on. Why? Because it's all happening in your imagination. Hmm. It's not really happening with your body. You're watching people have sex or you're encountering somebody who's being sexual with you, but you're not touching that person. And there's Mm. very, we don't, we're, we're still looking at the oxytocin component, but Dopamine in the sexual context without oxytocin is really scary to me. Mm. And there is definitely less dopamine in a pornography encounter. Um, Oxytocin is predominantly created by skin-to-skin contact. Mm -hmm. So you're obviously not having that with a pornography thing, interaction. Um, But it lasts this long, long time um, because your brain can recall that memory. Even if you walk away from the computer screen, Mm. your brain is recalling that memory and sustaining this high. So what we see is people being drawn away from real sex. In the last decade, there is less sex happening in our country than ever. Mm. Why? They're having their dopamine hits in front of a screen. And in their imagination when they're away from the screen, yeah. it sounds like what you're saying. Yeah. So how do you, how does somebody, and then we're going to move on to purity and modesty in those terms and how it relates to sex, but how would somebody then go about breaking those thoughts or memories or stopping the dopamine hit from continuing mm-hmm. so that they can enjoy a real sexual encounter with their It depends spouse. how far along it is. You know, there are certainly some people who have been moderate pornography users or... Um, they are not sex addicts, but they have abused sex as college students. You know, they've had a lot of partners. Mm-hmm. Um, generally, talking to someone else and getting some mentoring, discipleship, accountability will be enough in that instance. But if it's become a sustained pattern, an addictive pattern, uh, if if it's been going on for years. Generally, you're going to need some professional help, especially mm-hmm. if it's a pornography dopamine addiction. It's one of the most difficult things to overcome. And so I really encourage you, if that's you, to just um, maybe start with a friend, mm-hmm. but don't be afraid. Oh, I wish, I, wish we had, I wish we weren't allergic to the word counseling. It's such a helpful thing. Right? Uh, I feel like we all need it. I wish it was called coaching because um, <laughs> I think it'd be sexier that way. I don't know. Like we'd, More men would go. More men would go. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, but you need help. Yeah, you that's need help. good. Okay, so let's pivot a little bit over here to uh, modesty and purity. And what I'm interested in doing or having you do is I would like you to define terms for mm-hmm. us. What What is modesty and what is purity? Mm-hmm. And how do they relate to sex? Yeah. Well, let's start with purity. Um, They're kind of, in my mind, big whole categories on their own. So Mm -hmm. let's start with purity. Um, So purity is that 
ability that we have, if sex is giving the whole, your whole self to someone, purity is having your whole self to give. Hmm. So um, in the context of scripture, purity, which is not a women's issue, there's right. more in the Bible on purity for men than there is for women. In our culture, How can we a think young that's man a keep his yeah, pure. <laughs> exactly. Like we think that's a woman's word, mm-hmm. and there's not a lot of men's purity ministries, um, and not a lot of purity ministries in general anymore. But that 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 word was a word that meant um, I'm I am untainted, just as we might have pure water, pure mm-hmm. bottle of water. I don't want to, I don't want to drink a bottle of water that's full of trash from a trashy river, right? Mm-hmm. I want to drink pure spring water. And so it was that, there was that connotation that all of me is untainted and untouched so that when I enter into the covenant relationship, I mm-hmm. can in fact give all of me to you. So the scriptural connotation is that. Uh, we, of course, that is not a good word. I get letters all the time to my ministry from moms who want their daughters to wait until they're married to have sex, but they're like, could you just not use the word purity because mm-hmm. it's so old fashioned and it's just not, it offends my daughter. And that's hard because here's what I believe. There's a verse in the Bible that says, if we're going to teach God's truth, we should use the words of God, the very words of God. And one of the words that God uses in the Bible when it comes to sexual behavior is, is purity. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, I think, think can I just interrupt yeah, yeah. here? I think now is a good time to remind everybody that this isn't about like if, <clears throat> if you have been sexually abused, yeah. it's not like you are tainted water. Like the, we are all tainted yeah. water without Jesus yep. in any regard or context, not just sex, but Jesus makes us completely pure. And so whatever your history is, yeah. all of us who have Jesus are pure. That was a big battle for me, Sarah, mm-hmm. when I was having to uh, really restart, push the reset button on my life. I felt so impure. I mm-hmm. felt so damaged. One of the things I've really not liked about the purity <clears throat> and modesty movements, and the reason I actually entered into the conversation is because I didn't like it. Mm. I thought it was for all the perfect kids, you know, yeah. and here I was an imperfect kid. I'm like, is there room for someone like me who's blown it? Because mm. I felt so impure. And so I began to like really examine the word and uh, Philippians uh, says that we can become pure. Mm. It's a process of becoming. The way we've used it in our modesty and purity movement is like it's a it's how we were born. Mm. It's not born. We're not born that way. Psalm 51.5 says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the moment my mother conceived me. We are born terribly, uh, I don't know if we're born, well, we're born sinful. So If anybody has kids. Yeah. I mean, they know this is true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or anybody who takes a good look at their own life. Yeah, exactly. Right. We all know so if we're, we're born honest. that way. But yeah. purity is a becoming process. So I really encourage people, if you think it's a virgin line, you cross or don't cross. I have known a lot of people who've had a lot of sexual brokenness in their lives, whether it was brokenness they chose or brokenness brought against them, that they're so beautifully pure. Mm-hmm. Their yes. lives just exude it. Mm -hmm. 
and I've known people <clears throat> and I've known a lot of people who haven't technically crossed any lines, but they're just icky, not pure. You know mm-hmm. what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. And that's because the biblical concept of purity is this direction. Mm-hmm. It's a direction that. that we're walking in. It's not where we have been. It's where we're headed. And, um, and where I want to head is I want to be in a place where my mind, my emotions, my body is not available to anyone but Bob Gresh. Mm. And you don't have to be married to have that desire that I, I want everything about me to be headed towards somebody. Now, another problem with the modesty movement is that we make the purity rings and all that stuff about the guy, mm. when in fact, purity really is about God. Yes. It's about my desire to please him. And if he brings a love relationship on this earth into my life as a part of my obedience to him in the pursuit of purity, then that is just a good bonus. But Mm. it's not like I'm making an agreement with God. Hey, God, I'll wear the modest clothes and I'll wear the purity ring if you Mm -hmm. promise me that by the time I graduate college, I also have an MRS degree to go along with whatever. You know, that's Mm -hmm. that kind of thinking is just really twisted, non- biblical thinking. Yeah, I think of the rings and the movement, and I think that somewhere along the line, we missed the point. Um, I think it's a beautiful idea to have a purity ring if it's reminding you of something, if it's reminding you of the direction. I love how you say purity is a direction. That is beautiful. If you're wearing it just because like, you know, you jumped on some movement, I'm going to, I'm going to wait to have sex until marriage, but it's more of the movement as it's, opposed it's to peer pressure, right? As opposed to your heart. Like for an example, and my listeners know that I've had an abortion. They've heard my story. When I found out the sex of my baby and I, I knew I had a son named David, I got a ring with his birthstone oh. as a reminder wow. to me of my son and what God has done and the redemption there. And so it's, I think that the idea is beautiful. Yeah. Somewhere along the line, it kind of got missed, that mm-hmm. whole thing. Um, so let me go back to this. So you've defined purity, mm-hmm. and my favorite part of that is purity as a direction. How would you define modesty, which talk about a hot button today, but how, mm-hmm. how would you define that? Yeah. And what a, do you see in the scripture? Well, the scripture only addresses modesty four times. Mm. So we're not, we're, our, our, we're not, we're not very obsessed with modesty right now as a Christian culture, but we were a decade ago. Mm-hmm. And that was really out of line with how we see it addressed in scripture. That's not to say it's not important because the scripture does address it. However, of those passages, what we can see is that it's primarily about your heart and your character, not about your body. Mm. So um, verses that say things like uh, a woman shouldn't be adorned with gold gold jewelry or braided hair or fine clothes, but rather she should have the inner adornment of a modest and pure heart. Um, and the context of that verse and others is that so that people can see the good works inside of you. So Mm. purity is really a state of mind that the way I'm presenting myself to you is appropriate so that you can see the way God is adorning my spirit and you're not distracted by how I've adorned my body. 
how do we decide what is appropriate? Well, that's what's really hard. I mean, you can take some things, like some of it is cultural. For example, um, it's not appropriate for me to wear a Speedo to a dance recital for my granddaughter, right? Mm -hmm. It's not appropriate for you to wear, I don't know, a Friday night cocktail dress to church on Sunday morning. (laughs) Like Like there's certain things that are appropriate. You wouldn't wear a bright colored polka dot sundress to a funeral. So there's certain parts of it that are definitely um, measuring the culture or subculture that I'm walking into, right? And how you're loving someone. Like the reason you don't wear the bright polka dot dress Uh to a funeral is because you're trying to show, unless the deceased had requested that, but otherwise it's because you're loving somebody by going, I'm grieving with you. I will show you that through how I am expressing myself. So So it's it's loving. Yeah. In that, you want people to see the inner qualities of your empathy, Mm -hmm. your love, your compassion, and your grief, right? Yes. So um, I think when the conversation becomes complicated is when it becomes about our sexual allure and our sexual Mm. power. And here's the thing. I do think women have sexual power. Mm -hmm. I think we're much cuter than the guys. (laughs) (laughs) That is why they use women's faces to sell men's razors, right? Mm. Like look at the advertising world. It's just nuts. Mm -hmm. And just even look at how women will dress compared to men. Men aren't showing off as much of their bodies. It's not that men's bodies aren't beautiful. It's that we just don't react to them and respond to them the same way that we do women's bodies. God created them to be a pinnacle of beauty, I think. Mm. Um, there's lots of places in scripture we can look and see that. Um, but but the power, do I, do I want to wield that power, that sexual allure and that beauty as a power for good or do I want an eternal good mm-hmm. or do I want to use it as power for the moment? Um, and I think for me, when it comes to sexual modesty, uh, choosing to dress so that my brains and my intellect and my character and those kinds of things get to drive the day versus my body, yeah. uh, that to me seems like empowerment as a woman. Yeah, I, I really like that because you're not making it about... The body, like you're not mm-hmm. making it about, um, I mean, there's an element of wanting to love others by yeah. not showing, you know, all of our body. Um, but I like how you're saying that this is going to showcase mm-hmm. something else, yeah. more of who you are than your flesh. Yeah, that's the biblical, <laughs> mm-hmm. that's the biblical teaching on modesty. I'm not saying that that doesn't mean uh, that you can't as a church have, you know, a policy or a family have a policy or a school or we have all kinds of corporate policies about how you dress. Schools can have policies about how students should dress. That's not saying that those things can't happen, but when we teach about modesty in our churches, we have to be really careful. If we're not balancing that teaching of the, the the Bible calls gold hair, gold jewelry, braided hair, and fine clothes with, let's not get obsessed with this so that you can see the inner qualities of beauty. Mm. Like that's a really lousy teaching because mm. you are missing the core, the heart of those verses yeah. that says, groom your heart, make your heart beautiful and let people see that. Don't yeah. distract from that. Mm. That's so good. So why are these topics so controversial now. What has happened? Because 
I see a lot of people talking about um, purity culture, which I'd like you to define for us for those who aren't really sure what that means. Um, And then help us to understand what has gone on that has just made even the mention of modesty Mm -hmm. or purity in relation to anything with sex just so like hands off, like don't don't talk about this. If you do, then you're just shaming people. Mm -hmm. It's a difficult thing. Why is it so difficult? Yeah. Even among Christians. Well, let's talk about purity culture. Okay. So purity culture, big, bad, controversial topic, right? Yes. I don't really know who coined that term, where it came from. I do know that a Boston University professor, Donna Freitas, has done some research in the past decade on purity culture versus hookup culture, because that would be the comparison or the, um, the polar opposites, right? Mm. And there's probably stuff in the middle. Um, and her research really reveals, first of all, she wouldn't say that modesty and purity culture is necessarily a good thing. She would say, you know, this is a secular researcher. I believe mm-hmm. she's, a, well, I, I can't speak to her religious preferences at all, but her research is secular. Um, and she says that purity culture does have efficacy, mm-hmm. even though she would not say it's necessarily favorable. So let me define that and explain that. Um, on a Penn State University campus, Ohio State campus, the uh, roughly 80% or more are fully sexually active. The average male is going to leave college with 9.7 sexual partners. The average female is going to leave with 7.2. That's average. So many of them have far more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... The hookup culture is very sexually active. Of course, we're not even talking about sexually transmitted diseases, untimely pregnancy, all the consequences, and even the consequences of emotions when those oxytocin and dopamine connections start to get confused because they don't know who to be connected to. Um, There's just more sex. So all the consequences of sex will also be more plentiful. In a purity or modesty culture, now we're, we're talking evangelical universities that would be saying, hey, this is what God's word says about restraint in sex. It's about 20% of the student body that's fully sexually active. Mm. Now, here's what's so amazing about that, Sarah, is that in almost all the other statistics about church versus mainline world on sexuality, for example, Women who read Fifty Shades of Grey. Statistically, mm-hmm. no difference in the church versus unchurched women. Hmm. Not, uh, not even by a half a percent. Um, in general, although we can see some differences in some of the more legalistic environments, men using porn, very little difference hmm. in church versus unchurched. Sexually active before marriage, very little difference in church versus unchurched. But here we have this one statistic from a secular study that says, hey, uh, hookup culture versus purity culture, big stinking difference mm. in the percentage of people actually having sex. So there's some efficacy to a culture that says restraint is valuable, restraint is good. And if there's less sex, there's going to be less sexually transmitted diseases. There's going to be less untimely crisis pregnancies. There's going to be less emotional aftermath because of dopamine and oxytocin confusion. Mm. So purity culture works, but purity culture is not the culture we live in. So those, those subcultures of those evangelical universities, they're, 
not very many of them. Mm-hmm. In general, we as Christians are not living in those purity subcultures. We're living at large and are affected by the hookup culture. So do you think the backlash, and I think it's fair to say backlash, against the purity culture is because of some of the shame that young women and men experienced in it? That's really complicated because shame is, I think, present. My research has shown me that shame is present whether you, whether you do or don't have a um, religious paradigm mm. for your sexual behavior. Mm-hmm. There's something about the sexual act that when it's misused, there's shame. Mm-hmm. We all respond a little differently. Some of us shut off. Some of us get emotional. Uh, but there's shame. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't. I don't know that shame is the right word. One study out of Penn State University: um, w- women who had their first sexual experience on campus in the 24 to 48 hours after that sexual experience, and it didn't matter their religious background, felt used, dirty. Uh, used a lot of words like that, duped, um, unbeautiful, unattractive. Hmm. So what what was that? That there was an emotional shame. So I don't think I don't think purity culture creates shame. I will say that some legalistic purity cultures probably make that shame worse. Anytime we're, we are only as sick as our secrets, right? Mm-hmm. So anytime you're in a culture where you're forced into secrecy, you're going to make that shame bigger. You're going to give that, put that shame in a Petri dish to grow. Yeah. yeah. And I think if you're made to feel ashamed of your body, because I think yeah. a lot of what I've heard from people who sort of push back against purity culture mm-hmm. is I think some of them have come from those legalistic environments where they were told your body is causing men to act irresponsibly with you, towards you, whatever. Mm -hmm. It's your fault. And then there's the shame over all of you. And that's Mm -hmm. not, but that's not of God. I mean, that's that's a man-made gross thing. Mm -hmm. The Bible says, greet each other with a holy kiss. Mm. And, you know, I do a lot of work in the Dominican Republic, and it's always shocking to me the first day I get there (laughs) because Christian men I love and respect, pastors are walking up to me planting kisses on my cheeks. (laughs) And and they're just completely physically affectionate, and it's Mm -hmm. completely Mm non-sexual. And you get used to it, and then you come back and you reach in for a kiss to an American Christian man, and you're like, oh, wait, wait, no, we're not there anymore. Mm -hmm. We don't do that. Mm -hmm. But there's an innocence and a sweetness about it. I don't think God wants us to be ashamed of or afraid of our bodies or the power of them or the beauty of them. Mm-hmm. I think He wants us to be affectionate and in high mm-hmm. contact with each other. When we get to a place in our Christian culture where we're hyper-legalistic about purity, mm-hmm. that's when we see all this stuff break down. And an example of that, remember I said um, when it comes to pornography, Christian men versus unchristian men, not a lot of difference, mm-hmm. except one big, big one. And that would be fundamentalist churches. Mm -hmm. So this would be these really legalistic pockets of Mm -hmm. Christianity, evangelical Christianity. We see an incredibly much higher use of pornography among men than the general population. Wow. So that's 
but but that is not Christianity as a whole. That is an example right. of a subculture where purity and modesty is used as a beating stick and there's no grace mm-hmm. and there's no tell me your story and there's no confess your sins one to another and then we'll be healed. There's a lot of picture perfect mm-hmm. behavior that's not really authentic. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I could ask you a million more questions, but I, I'm not going to do that because we have to wrap this up soon. So I, I'm just going to I'm going to ask you two more questions with maybe a sub question there to the young women mm-hmm. who are listening. Yeah, and they're not maybe hearing a lot about modesty and purity in a positive light, but mm-hmm. they're hearing this and they're thinking, I want to walk in a way that is pure and modest before God, or pure and appropriate um, as a Christian young woman, what advice would you give them on how to do that? What does that look like Mm -hmm. in this day and age? Well, my first thought is, hey, if you don't like the conversation about purity and modesty, enter into it and fix it. Mm. That's what I did. I didn't like the conversation. I didn't like that it didn't, I didn't like that it didn't include sinners like me. Um, and so I entered into the conversation. The funny thing is, you know, now fast forward 20 years, people think I'm a name in the modesty and purity movement. And I'm like, I was actually, (laughs) I was actually a rebel in the modesty and purity movement. If you look back on it, um, and I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, I, I participated in Joshua Harris's, um, documentary where he was, you know, saying, Hey, I don't, I don't know if I believe what I believed then. Mm. And he kind of has recanted since then and pulled his book. Um, And when I, when he called, I said, Josh, are you going to throw the baby out with the bathwater? Cause I'm totally fine with you um, saying, yeah, I didn't mean to start a legalistic movement. I'm not okay with you saying that what God's word says isn't true. Mm. And he said, no, I don't want to do that. But I, I would just encourage you if you're at unrest with the um, the conversation, enter into it. Now, don't enter into it mindlessly. Hit your Bible, hit your Bible con- commentary, muscle up. If you can tell me the Hebrew language of sex and you can tell me the, the oxytocin and dopamine and all the neurochemicals of sex and you're entering into a conversation and you can say, hey, I can do this intelligently, then come to me and tell me what we're getting wrong. But if you're just going to say, hey, I don't like it that way, so I'm going to do it my way, that's not mindful to me. Uh, Be mindful. I believe that the 20-somethings that are concerned about the church right now have a lot of things on their hearts that are on God's heart. Mm. They're concerned about the shallowness of the church. They're concerned that it's not calling us to something deep and liturgical Mm. and meaningful. Um, I love the questions they're bringing to the church right now. What I don't like sometimes is when all of us get online and we think just because there's a button we can push that says post, that we have something meaningful to say. I'm always asking myself before I post something, does this really need to be said? Do I know the research behind this? Mm. Do I I know enough about this topic? I think it's really good for us to ask those questions, but let's change the conversation if it's not right. Yeah, I think that's good. And I just want to add one more thing. If you don't know how to live out a, a modest and pure expression, mm-hmm. ask God to show you. Yeah. Just say, God, will you show me how to live this out as a young woman Yeah, uh, in a culture that tells me I can express myself however I want? How would you say yeah. that I should express myself? That's Lord? the key right there. Mm-hmm. God, what do you want? Yes. Like yes. if we just go to him, mm-hmm. uh, 
he always gets it right. Yes. We don't always as a church, but Mm -hmm. God always gets it right. That's right. That's good. And here's my last question to you. And that is, I know there are moms listening Mm -hmm. who have um, teen girls, teen sons, and they're going, how do I hold the line on some things? And when do I know when to release? Yeah. When, how do I... um, I'm going to bring up one example that I don't want you to give me an answer to. I just want you to teach us how to walk through it. Mm -hmm. So let's say you have a family that has decided that they would prefer their daughter not to wear a bikini, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, And the daughter has said, please, all my friends are, I really want to, everybody does, I feel really dumb in a whole piece or tankini or whatever it is. Again, Mm -hmm. this is just an example. This isn't a point of whatever. I don't even want Dana to give us an answer on this. I just want, how do we walk through that with our children? When do we know when to hold a line? And when do we know when to say, okay, like I'm going to let you make your decisions on this. Well, the ultimate reason to hold a line as a parent is because it teaches your children respect for authority. It doesn't have to do as much with all the things, right? Mm -hmm. As it does that our whole life long, if we're not respectful towards others and respectful of authorities in our lives, we're going to have a hard life have a hard time keeping a job. We're going to have a hard time gaining relationships with professors in college, having a hard time having healthy marriages without respect. Mm. So uh, for us as family, it was mostly about, okay, is it about the bikini and the tankini and the one piece? Or is it about, well, the Bible doesn't say anything about what kind of bathing suit you should wear. (laughs) So it's not God's rule. It's a family preference. Mm. That's a word we used a lot. This is a family preference preference that that. we have. I like that. And it's not what God says, but this is what we prefer until we aren't paying the bills anymore. We would really like you to be respectful of our family preferences. And um, I think that's important. Uh, It gives your children the understanding to know that they have, first of all, my mom and dad just asked me, will I respect the family preference? Mm. And I think there were lots of family preferences that my three kids were like, "Mm, not going to do it that way. They might feel differently by the time they have kids. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, when I left my home, there were certainly family preferences that I was like, my, pa- my parents were crazy. <laughs> and then I had kids and I'm like, oh, I kind of like that family preference. So mm-hmm. call it a family preference, not God's rule. You'll I avoid like that. that the, the legalism. And it lets them know that, hey, when I'm paying the bills, I can make a decision about this for myself. Mm-hmm. I That's... Fantastic, but I but it's okay to say no, right? I think that's good. That's and, the and other when, mistake we make is our kids when mm-hmm. they're in like fourth grade. We're saying, well, what school do you want to go to? Mm-hmm. It's like, really, does your fourth grader have the understanding to make the decision about what school is best for them, or what movies can I go to? Really, does your ninth grader have an understanding about mm-hmm. how movies impact them? Our brains aren't really fully formed till like we're like twenty two, mm-hmm. so we don't have good prefrontal cortex executive decision making skills until about then, and so. If you are letting your kids speak into those decisions, I don't have any problem with that. But if you're letting them call the shots, that's just bad parenting. I love how you said that. Like, let's let our kids speak into it, but not call the shots. Yep. Oh, I'm going to have to interview you again on parenting. <laughs> this is excellent. I really wanted to ask you another question, but I don't think we have time. So I'm going to ask you to give me a, a good book recommendation for all of us parents out there. How do we talk kindly and faithfully and compassionately and empathetically and wisely about sex to our kids? Oh, I wish there was a book. Oh, Dana. What? It's time for you to write one. (laughs) Oh, it'd be such a hard book to write. Like there's not a 
book that I can recommend to you. You have to piece it together stage by stage. Um, okay, well, then, then I'm going to put you on the spot and say, in five minutes or less, tell us, how, how can you encourage parents to talk to their kids about sex? And yes, all of you listening, it is very important because if you're not doing it, somebody else yeah. is. So tell us, give us a five minute, like encourage parents, like well, you can do this. Here's what you can do. Okay. So number one, if you mm-hmm. haven't talked to them by their ninth birthday, you're probably letting the world talk to them. The school bus for sure. Yeah. And so social media. Oh your my silence becomes a megaphone to mm-hmm. the world if you're not talking to them by their ninth birthday. Mm-hmm. Some kids are ready earlier than that. Some kids, a few are ready later, but most of them are ready by then. So start earlier than you're comfortable with this conversation. The second thing is do your own healing. Like if you can't figure out your own junk, you're certainly not going to help your kids with theirs. Figure out your own healing. And the third is it's an ongoing conversation. Don't don't have the talk. There mm-hmm. is no such thing as the talk. Really a good sexual discipleship for your children starts in when they're like 3 and 4 years old. When you start talking about the differences between male and female, you can do that in simple ways. Like show them a flower. A flower has going to say the flower example. Flower. The flower has a mommy part, a daddy part, right? A mm-hmm. pistil and a stamen. There's mm. there's gender differentiation. And oh my goodness, listen, I have to tell you this. This is my new mind blowing thing <laughs> about males and females. So when my baby girls were born, my baby grandbabies were born there in the NICU, mm-hmm. the preemie. They're preemie. So. Um, just born, you guys, like Just what, a week born. ago? Yeah. So, so so, mom and dad haven't been able to hold one of them yet, but the other one's really thriving. They've been able to hold her a few times. And I was got to be there when Robbie was holding Zoe and they kept taking her temperature, kept taking her temperature while he's holding her. And mm-hmm. she's like under a blanket and up against his chest and just like little fingers or, or, you know, rubbing his little chest. And it's just so precious. So finally, Robbie said, why are you taking her temperature? Because... You didn't take a, her temperature when Aaliyah was holding her. Are you worried? And he's, she's like, oh, no. She's like, mommies have this amazing supernatural ability. When they hold their babies, their bodies adjust to their baby's temperature so they don't change their baby's temperature. But dads can't do that. Oh, wow. Mind blown. <sighs> and, and then she said, and, and um, your wife produces more oxytocin with your daughter than you are able to produce. Mm. And so... That oxytocin is kind of like a painkiller. Even for you and me, it creates a lot of peace. Well, yeah, that's why people are addicted. That's why they love it so much. (laughs) And all these, on and on, she went to explain all these things that Aaliyah's Mm. body could do that our male, that my husband, that my son's body couldn't do when he held Zoe. So like just telling your kid that Mm. when they're eight or nine years old about the amazing differences. Yeah, that's incredible. That is sexual theology training right there. So just have this ongoing conversation every time you hear it. My mom was always like, hey, there's cats going to be born down the road that she's (laughs) delivering right now. Let's go watch. And she would be telling us, you know, it's gross, but she would tell us. where your ministry started. (laughs) Yeah, that's where it really started. Oh, Dana, this was so wonderful. Thank you so much for being on the show. And I hope you come back sometime to talk to us about parenting because you have this great new book out, Lies Girls Believe, which of course is in the Lies series of books with mm-hmm. uh, Nancy. I always want to say Lee DeMoss, but of course it's Nancy. Nancy DeMoss Walgamuth. <laughs> yeah, it's a mouthful. Right, right. And um, tell us where people can find more about you, find your books, your ministry, yeah. everything. They can go, they, they can learn about our tween ministry at 
mytruegirl.com or then go to danagresh.com. Wonderful. And I'm going to convince you to come back sometime and we'll talk parenting. So again, Yay. thank you so much, Dan. My My blessing. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you for listening to the Complicated Heart Podcast. Loved this episode? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Reviews are how people know if they should listen or not. So please, if you like the show, take a minute and give it a review. Thank you so much. If you want to know more, check out sarahmay.com forward slash the complicated heart podcast. See you next time.